who's actually uh, friends of Matisse. And um, what happened was this art historian was looking at the collection and he noticed that in one of the paintings there was a building that uh, he knew was built in the 1950s, but the artist supposedly, uh, the, the supposed artist had died in the 1920s. So he raised an issue and the museum hired a bunch of experts to come in and to review all the paintings. And they concluded that 82 paintings, 82 paintings were forgeries. That had cost the museum over $200,000. And uh, a museum representative made this great understatement when he said, maybe we were a little naive not to look more closely. <laughs> maybe. At the origins of these paintings, he said. Things are not always what they appear to be. And it's easy to be fooled by surface appearances. In our reading from the Gospel, we see that Jesus is an expert when it comes to detecting spiritual authenticity. Jesus is not fooled by external appearances. And he warns us not to be fooled either. So this passage in Mark chapter 12 is taking place on the last week of Jesus' life on earth. This is taking place on Tuesday in Holy Week. So just days after this, um, on Friday, he will be arrested. He will be crucified. So it's all leading up to this great event. His mission is about to be fulfilled. His last week in Jerusalem. And he knows that his disciples are going to take leadership of this movement. When he dies and is raised again and ascends to heaven, they're the ones that are going to carry on his message and his mission. And he does not want to, the, to them to be uh, spiritual leaders like the leaders of the day. And so he is warning them here about the scribes. Beware of the scribes, he says. Now, the scribes, of course, were religious leaders in Jesus' day, and they were experts in the Jewish law. They, were, um, they had an official position. Their stronghold was there in Jerusalem, and they were, again, experts in the Jewish law. Now, Jesus points out that although these scribes may look religious, he is seen right through their exterior. He, he, he sees that they are in it for themselves. Now, of course, not all of the religious leaders in Jesus' time were in it for themselves, but Jesus sees widespread hypocrisy in the religious leadership of his day. And he is always quick to point this out, which gets him in a lot of trouble. But he says the scribes, they like people to notice how religious they look. They like to walk around in their long robes and they like to be greeted with special greetings in the marketplace. They like to be seated in positions of prominence and have the best seats in the synagogue and the best places, the places of honor at the feast. They would be the kind of people who would come to church and expect a parking lot reserved just for them or maybe to be served first at the church dinners. Jesus says that they like to pray long, impressive prayers. But it's for a pretense, he says. It's for show. 
uh, Eugene Peterson in the message. He paraphrases that part of it this way. The longer that they pray, the worse the prayer gets. Because it was to be seen. It was to impress others. And not only were they in it for themselves, but they were taking advantage of the vulnerable. They were taking advantage of widows. It says they devour widows' houses. Now again, these were experts in the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law is very clear that the people of God are to protect the most vulnerable. And singles out over and over again, protecting widows and the most poor. In fact, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 10 warns of God's judgment on those who would take advantage of the most vulnerable. Isaiah 10 says, Woe to those who make widows their prey. What will you do on the day of reckoning? And so these religious leaders, again, they knew these texts, they knew this law, but they ignored it for the sake of greedy gain. They were in it for themselves. They looked religious on the outside, but their hearts were far from God. And that's what Jesus sees. And that's what he's pointing out to his disciples. And he's saying, do not go down this road. Do not be satisfied with external appearance. Now, this passage is very relevant for people like me, who wear robes and clerical garb, right? Very relevant for the clergy and for those who aspire to serve in any official capacity in the church. We cannot settle for outward appearance. Our relationship with God has to be the first priority. Cultivating, maintaining that relationship with God has to be the first priority of our lives. We have to understand and continually remind ourselves that we are not in this for ourselves to promote our agenda. We are here to serve others in the name of Christ. And congregations have a right to expect that from their leaders and to hold us accountable to that. And when they detect we're getting out of line, they have the right and responsibility to call us to account. We might be able to fool some people, but we cannot fool Christ. So I think the primary application of this part of the passage has to do with or is directed to people like me. But I think in a broader sense, because Jesus is warning against religious hypocrisy, it can apply to all of us who name the name of Christ. This is a warning against religious hypocrisy, appearing to be something on the outside that you're not on the inside. And one commentator, uh, J.C. Ryle, he put it this way. He says, it's bad enough to be open in sin, to be led into open sin. It's even worse to pretend to be a Christian when in reality, we are serving the world. Let us be real, honest, and sincere Christians. We cannot deceive, J.C. Ryle says, we cannot deceive an all-seeing God. And so a warning against religious hypocrisy here. And then Jesus moves from scrutinizing these religious leaders to taking note, to observing what's happening in the offering. And once again, we see Jesus... He sees something that other people don't see. He is seen beneath the surface of what is happening here during the offering time. And most of you know this story very well. Rich people are coming into the temple courts and they are pouring out 
their great offerings. Large sums of money is going into the offering. Now, um, the offering was set up this way. It was in a court called the Court of Women. And it was a large courtyard where men and women, Jewish men and women, could gather there. And there were these bronze receptacles, these bronze funnels. And, um, and they were kind of like a, a trumpet-like structure. And um, it was a funnel, and, in the, and then underneath the funnel, underneath the courtyard, were the actual offering boxes for the temple. And there, I think, were 13 or so of these receptacles um, in the courtyard, underneath the, the, the colonnade there in the courtyard, the court of women. And so you can imagine these rich folks, when they brought their coins, they made quite an impression. They poured out their coins into the receptacle. These were bronze receptacles. Maybe there was a lot of clinking and clanging that went on as they poured their offering in. It would have been an impressive sight. might have sounded impressive. So Jesus is watching this. As it says, many rich people put in large sums. And then comes this poor widow. She doesn't have hardly anything to offer but just two small coins. These were the smallest coins in circulation available at this time. Worth a penny, says. That's how we could relate to this. The smallest coin, the least valuable coin. And she's got two of these. And she throws it into the receptacle. Clink, clink. Not very impressive. Not a lot of people are going to take notice of this. If they do, they might think, oh, that's kind of, it's kind of pitiful. That's all she's got. But Jesus calls his disciples over and he says, I want you to see this woman. Again, he's seen beneath the surface. He says, this woman, this widow has put in more than everyone else. How is that? Well, they gave out of their abundance, he says. They had plenty of leftover after they gave. But she gave everything, all that she had to live on. Her gift was greater, not in terms of quantity, of course, but in quality, it demonstrated her complete trust in God to take care of her. That's why this passage in our lectionary is paired with the widow passage, the widow of Zarephath, who trusted in the word of God and gave all that she had. She had greater faith. So her, term, her gift was greater, not in terms of quantity, of course, but in quality. There's a principle here for us, isn't there? When it comes to giving, when it comes to generosity, the more we give to God, the more we give to the kingdom of God, that represents oftentimes greater trust in God. Whether we're talking about money, material possessions, or our time, our talent, our energy, what we give to God indicates often our trust in God. And our, our refusal to give, our withdrawing, our withholding, indicates a lack of faith in God. We're called to give God all that we are. We recognize that all that we have comes from Him. And so, uh, this, this lady is demonstrating great faith with this, with this gift. Now, I have to tell you this story. This is a true story that a, another priest wrote about. But he said he preached one time on the widow's might. And a man in his congregation was so inspired by this sermon that he emptied out his entire wallet, kind of as a symbolic act. He emptied out his wallet and put it in the offering plate. And then he noticed that he had a very expensive watch on that Sunday. And he took off his watch and he put that in the offering plate as well. And so once in a while when the pastor preaches, 
on this passage, or he's in a stewardship campaign, he will take out the watch and he will show people. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to look at what you happen to put in the offering plate. It's between you and the Lord. God alone knows our hearts. And God alone sees true generosity. And so, Jesus is commending this poor widow for her generosity. And he wants his disciples to see this. He wants them to be more impressed with her faith than with the large gifts that are going in to the offering, to the temple treasury. And then finally, as they walk out of this temple, uh, the disciples are remarking on the awesome sight of the temple itself. Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And they were impressive. The temple that Herod had built, the buildings, was an impressive, awesome sight. Some of these cornerstones, the cornerstones of the temple I read were some of them, um, they were all made of limestone and, and they weighed more than 50 tons each. Uh, Josephus, who was an ancient historian, Jewish historian in the first century, he talks about the way the temple looked. And he said on the outside, the outside face of the temple was covered with uh, gold plates so that when the sun shone on these golden plates, it reflected into people's eyes. And he even said, he said, that when the rising sun shone on the temple, people were forced to turn their eyes away because of, in his words, the reflection of a very fiery splendor. So you can just imagine, you have these gold plates and the sun shining off of them and the white limestone, this enormous building. It was awesome to behold. But then Jesus predicts something here in our passage that, must have been devastating for the disciples to hear. I, I think it's hard for us to understand as 21st century Americans how devastating what Jesus says here must have been for those first century Jewish disciples to hear when he predicts that the temple is going to be destroyed. That must have been like a jolt of electricity when they heard that. I mean, because the temple in Judaism is the dwelling place of God. The temple is the center of national identity. The temple is where the sacrifices happen so sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God. The Messiah was supposed to uphold the temple, rescue the temple from the enemies of God. And here Jesus is predicting something that really did happen. The temple was destroyed in AD 70 when the Romans crushed a Jewish revolt against them. All that's left of the temple now, and those of you who've been to Jerusalem know what's left is the Wailing Wall. And so, and by the way, this is one reason we can trust in, in Jesus is these predictions that he made. It came true. I mean, this was said decades before AD 70. The temple was destroyed. What's going on here? Jesus is predicting God's judgment on this temple. It looks good on the outside, but inside there's a lot of corruption. And just before this, you know, Jesus has cast out the money changers and overturned the tables in the temple. That was foreshadowing. That was like an enacted parable. That was foreshadowing the judgment that was to come. My house shall be called a house of prayer. But it was being corrupted by religious leaders. And so Jesus, um, he sees the corruption of the leaders of the temple. He sees their hypocrisy. 
Jesus is also, he, he, there's something else going on in this context. You've got the corruption of the Jewish leadership, and then you have Jewish revolutionaries who are saying, we've got to overthrow the Roman government, and Jesus is warning them, those who live by the sword, what? Die by the sword. That is not the way of peace either. But those things are beginning to, to, to collide here and to culminate here. And Jesus says, if we go down this road, if we continue down the, the corruption and if religious leaders will not hear me, God's Messiah, God's King, and if you continue revolutionaries to go down the road of violence, destruction is going to occur. And that's what happened in AD 70. Jesus is going to be the new temple for the people of God. In his death, through his death, the sins of the whole world, the sins of Israel and the whole world will be paid once and for all. As we read about in our passage from Hebrews, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So temple sacrifices are no longer required. He paid the full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And he lived a perfect life in our place. His body, not the temple in Jerusalem, but his body, the church, is going to be the dwelling place of God throughout the whole world. So the disciples, again, they're impressed with the outward appearance. Jesus sees the spiritual corruption that's lying beneath what's going on in the temple. And that corruption led to judgment. Friends, there's an important lesson for us here this morning, I think, here at Church of the Resurrection. I've been thinking a lot, our vestry has been talking a lot about expanding our church building, which is something we believe we need to do. We need to expand our church building in order to fulfill the mission that God has given us to do. And it will be wonderful to have a larger building to make a, a statement to the community that we are here. We're going to be rooted here in this community. We are a church that wants to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And that's part of our heritage as Anglicans. We understand the importance of beauty and lifting up the heart and the soul to God. So the building is important, but it's not the most important thing. That cannot be the number one priority of a church, obviously. Our highest priority has to be loving God, worshiping God, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, obeying Him, seeking to obey Him who loved us so much that He gave His only Son and to share this message of love. Now, if that's not our highest priority, if our flame of devotion to God dies down, then none of the externals will matter at all. None of it will matter at all. It can be a very powerful aid to worship, the external things. We believe that. We're incarnational, sacramental Christians. But none of it will matter if we do not love the Lord and seek to serve Him if our devotion dies down. The robes, the candles, beautiful building will be a form of godliness, but there won't be any reality behind it. And there's a lot of churches that are beautiful churches. You all have visited them, many of you, in Europe. Lots of beautiful churches and cathedrals that mostly sit empty on Sunday. And they've turned into museums. Why? I think there's many factors going on, but could it be that one reason is that God has judged them? God has left them because they've turned their back on Him and His Son 
and the word of His Son. God preserve us. God keep us from going that way. So let's not be satisfied with mere externals. Let's not be like that art museum that was fooled by the forgeries. J.C. Ryle said, God has called us to be authentic Christians, real, honest, and sincere Christians, and to give ourselves to the one who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.